Hey everybody, it's good to see you. My name is Brian, one of the pastors here at the Summit. And uh, we're continuing the gospel according to Mark. We're looking at the life of Jesus. And as we do this, um, and before we jump into the passage, I want you to think about, I think this is something we're all fairly similar and alike in. Um, I want you to think about how you and I have this propensity to almost Photoshop our lives and project an image of ourselves that really is far different than the real thing. Uh, If you're anything like me, when you're talking to somebody or you're replaying an argument or you're in the midst of an argument, whatever it is, you tend to um, maybe brush over your weaknesses and your shortcomings. You tend to exaggerate your strengths and what you've done, uh, all projecting this image that really is kind of far different from what exists uh, in reality. And so, I mean, just in my own life, I was thinking about this. I feel like this happens whenever I take my daughter to the pediatrician. I don't know if any of you have small children, but the very first thing, at least in my pediatrician, that happens when you take, that, take our uh, daughter in is that um, they hand us this packet that's asking, like, what has she done developmentally at this stage in her life? And for those of you who are parents, you know there's something unbelievably unhealthily tied between your own heart and your quality of who you think you are as a human being and, like, what your child is able to do. And I get this form, and I'm like, I'm just going to be honest, like, I don't like admitting where my daughter is falling short because I feel like I'm falling short. So it's like, yeah, she's walking. Um, Yeah, I mean, maybe it was a step, but it's like, I think she could. Like, I think she has. Like, it's not really walking. It's more like running, really. Like, her her form is impeccable. And uh, the reality is, is like, I think one time when I came in from a nap time, she was doing a cartwheel. And uh, I just caught it out of the corner of my eye at the last second. But, you know, I'm sure she'll show us that uh, as well. And many of you parents do this as well. You totally lie on those forms. Because, like, you know how much kind of who you are as a parent is tied to, like, what your child is able to do or not do. Or think about maybe, like, think this past week, if you had a difficult conversation at work or with a friend. Um, chances are, if you were playing that that conversation, maybe to your spouse or to a roommate or to a friend, as you were playing that conversation, you didn't say what happened, but really more of what you think should have happened or the way you think it should have been perceived. Uh, you know, you didn't say like what you actually said as you were playing that, replaying that conversation. It's more of like what you wish you had said after you had an hour to kind of think about the way you should have put things in a particular way. Or you don't say exactly what the person you were arguing with says, but you kind of provide little bite-sized edits totally out of context to make them seem like they're utterly ridiculous. All because you are desiring for your spouse, your roommate, or your friend to be like, you're right, they're an idiot, and you're brilliant, and I can't believe anybody would ever disagree with you. And you're like, I know, finally, finally somebody is recognizing the way this should be in the world. We do this over and over and over again. We cover up our weaknesses, we project our strengths, all for the sake of kind of giving over this highly photoshopped uh, version of ourselves that's better than the real thing. I think all because there's some sort of intrinsic fear in all of our hearts that it's like, if you got to really know me for who I really am and not sort of the made-up version, like, you're not going to be very happy with what you see. And I'm afraid that you would really love me and accept me for who I actually am. Now, the reason I start with all of that is because I think because this is such a universal human propensity, um, I think that we tend to assume, and, and there's sort of all sorts of arguments for this, we tend to assume the exact same thing is done with Jesus. Uh, in that, as you were reading this book that we're studying, the Gospel According to Mark, and really the larger Bible, um, the theory goes like this. You were trying to be tricked into believing in Jesus, and as a consequence, the writers who were telling you about the life of Jesus aren't telling you what really happened, but really more of kind of cleaning up uh, the bad parts, exaggerating the strengths and the gifts of Jesus, all for the sake of sort of tricking you into believing. And that 
argument has led many people away from the Christian faith. Uh, the whole theory behind you know, a book that was written a decade ago, The Da Vinci Code, or maybe you took an intro to religious studies course in college, and a professor said this, and you saw a number of people say, oh, that makes a whole lot of sense. I do this, and so Jesus probably does this. And it, and it really is an argument against the Christian faith that I think makes a whole lot of sense, if I'm just being transparent. It makes a whole lot of sense until uh, you read a passage like this one, where Jesus is tremendously disappointing. And it's really funny. I mean, kind of the whole idea of what we're talking about this morning, main idea is Jesus disappoints. And it's really funny because it's like a story like this one is exactly the type of story you don't include if you're trying to trick people into believing in a false savior. You don't include a story like this one if you're trying to cover up weaknesses and exaggerate strengths. And I, I just say all of that this morning before we jump into it. I, I think for a couple of reasons. I mean, so one, in this story, you're going to see Jesus disappoint his closest friends and followers in a tremendous way. And I think that should give you some sort of intellectual hope, because for those of you kind of wrestle with, is what we're reading, did that really happen to real people in real history? I think that this morning's passage is a really great example of that being the case, uh, that it is, because it's exactly the type of detail you don't include if you're trying to trick people into believing uh, in this faith. But not only does it give you kind of an intellectual hope, but I think it gives you really a, a hope for your heart as well, uh, particularly for those of you who have ever been tremendously disappointed by God. And let's be honest, no matter what you believe, and even if you don't believe in God, you've been disappointed by God. Like there have been moments in your life where life is not looking the way that you want it to look, and you're asking yourself, like, God, where are you? I know I don't believe in you. I know I don't want to go to church, but where are you? And if you're really all good, and if you're really all powerful, like, why does my life look like this right now? It's, it's a feeling, if you ever felt that, the disciples are going to feel this as well, as they wrestle with Jesus, who we've said is not just fully man, but fully God as well. And really what we're going to see as we press into this, why this gives a, a hope for our heart, is not only does this give you a permission to be transparent about wrestling with those emotions and feelings, like God can handle it. He can handle your struggles and your doubts. But not only that, but then when we press into those doubts and when we press into those disappointments, a far more beautiful truth emerges. And that's really what we're going to see, and it should give some degree of uh, hope with this as well. And so we're going to jump right into the story. We're going to start in verse 29, and we're going to see Jesus disappoint. And we're going to see why Jesus disappointing his closest friends and followers was actually really good news. So let's look at verse 29. Uh, it says, immediately, he, that he is Jesus, left the synagogue. If you remember last week, we saw Jesus go into the synagogue. He's teaching, he's healing, he's changing the world, and enter into the house of Simon and Andrew. It's interesting. Uh, we actually, we think we know from an archaeological standpoint where this actually is I think we have a picture of this. I know, not very impressive, um, but this is in Capernaum, and a lot of archaeologists actually believe this is the scene where the scene we're studying right now uh, all went down. There was originally a, a church built around it, but it's just pretty interesting to me. That's why I included it. Okay, and it says, um, with Simon and Andrew, with James and John. Now, verse 30, now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever. Immediately they told him about her, and he came back, or he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. So Jesus, he's healed again, in the process of healing again. The consequence is his fame continues to spread 
throughout the region. You see this in verse 32. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. Which again, let me make another side note here. One of the interesting kind of critiques that people make of the Bible is that when you see people kind of healed of spiritual oppression, a lot of times the assumption that people are carrying or what they'll even say is, yeah, 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 that's all sort of superstition. People had headaches. They didn't have Advil back then. And so they attributed every sort of physical illness to demons. That makes a lot of sense until you actually read the story. It's interesting. Look at the detail that Mark includes. They were sick or oppressed by demons. Mark's kind of like anticipating that argument and is like, look, we know the difference between a headache and demonic oppression, okay? And that's why I include these details. Verse 33, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. So you're seeing the extent to which this movement is growing in fame. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Now, as we walk through this disappointment, here's the way I want you to think about this. Really, the story, it unfolds like any sort of disappointment. How does disappointment unfold in your life? There is a build-up, there's sort of hope, anticipation, things are going to go well, and then there is a letdown. Now, in these first several verses up to verse 34, you are seeing a tremendous build-up and the anticipation and the hopes of the disciples who first followed Jesus. You have to remember, we've been walking through this whole story. If you remember, the disciples, they sort of cashed out their life savings and invested everything on Jesus. They have left the most important things that they could leave in that culture and really of our culture of today as well. They have left their jobs. They have left their family. No doubt there would have been tremendous ridicule. No doubt there would have been tremendous doubt and skepticism from the people that knew them and loved them the most. And they have cashed out their life savings. They have invested everything in Jesus. And it appears in this moment that investment is going to pay off handsomely. Like, think about this. Just a few days ago, it's just Jesus and a few of them. And then all of a sudden now, the whole town is pressing in at the door. It's kind of like they got on the ground floor of this startup named Jesus, and now this thing is blowing up. It's like you bought Apple stock when it was like nothing, and all of a sudden it blows up, and they release the iPod, and you're like, we're all going to be millionaires, right? Like, I mean, this is the way these guys are thinking. Like, we got in with Jesus, and we are part of the entourage, and we are part of the inner core, and everybody's going to get to live in his huge house, and Xboxes for everybody, and this is going to be amazing. And so the hope is building and building and building and building. And it's like, yeah, take that mom who told me I should never leave home. Take that brother who told me I should never leave my job. I'm with Jesus, and the whole town loves us now. Like, haters going to hate. And then he says this. Look at what happens. There's this buildup, and there's this anticipation. Feel the weight of the anticipation that you would have been feeling if you left everything to follow Jesus. They get to him, and look what happens in verse 35. And rising very early in the, next, in the morning, so this is the next day, this is the next day after this incredibly successful day of ministry, while it was still dark, he, being Jesus, departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. That's funny. Uh, Ruth Dameron, one of our uh, members, she made an interesting observation. I felt like she gave the perfect illustration. Like, basically what's happened is the next day, there's been this crazy day of ministry, super successful. The company is blowing up, and all of a sudden, the disciples wake up, and, like, the CEO isn't there anymore. It's almost like, for those of you who have young kids, you know when your kids are, like, fine playing on their own until they, like, recognize you're not in the room anymore? 
Or they think you're not in the room anymore, and they're like, oh my gosh, like, where's mom? Where's dad? They all of a sudden look up, and they realize they're alone. That's what's happened with the disciples. They're like, where's Jesus? Did he leave us? Was this a scam? Was this a pyramid scheme? What is going on? We got to go find him. And so they start searching for him and try to find him wherever they can. And look what happens when they find him. Look at verse 37. And they found him, and they said to him, everyone is looking for you. Now, that's really interesting. This is why I love reading the Bible, because people back then talked the same way we would uh, today as well. And this is exactly what I would say as well. I'd be like, Jesus, all the customers are at the door. What are you doing? Everybody's looking for you. Get back. And look at the way Jesus responds. Look and try to feel the weight of the disappointment you would feel if you hear Jesus say these words, because here comes the letdown. So everybody's looking for you, Jesus. Verse 38 And he said to them, let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. Everybody's looking for you, Jesus. You're tremendously successful. Let's leave and go somewhere else. I didn't come for that fame or fortune or to be praised by the crowds. And in that moment, like, I feel like the disciples must have been feeling like, have we made a huge mistake Like, this guy is like a crazy genius. Like, on one hand, he's super successful and super talented, and he has this super charismatic personality that's leading to entire towns, pressing in to his door. But on the other hand, like, he doesn't clamor for that. He doesn't want that. Like, doesn't anybody know when you're starting a movement, you go wherever the crowds want you to go, and you're going to walk away from that? Like, what in the world have we begun to sign up for? Now, in order to kind of help you see maybe the disappointment a little better, Jesus is going to disappoint us and disappoint these disciples in three particular ways. And you see two of them, the first two, really in verse 38, when Jesus is like, I'm going to walk away from these people, I'm going to go do my own thing, because I have a different mission than the one you are trying to impose upon me. Now the first is this. This is how Jesus disappoints in this scene. The first, Jesus disappoints because he doesn't surrender to the crowd. Jesus disappoints because he doesn't surrender to the crowd. It's really funny to me when you see the disciples, they say, everybody's looking for you. Like, that's their appeal to get Jesus to do what it is they want him to do. Like, what do we call this? We call this peer pressure, right? So what we're seeing is, if the disciples were back in middle school, they're the guys who are trying to get you to smoke behind the cafeteria because all the cool kids are doing it. You would think, hopefully, that like peer pressure would be a thing of, a pa- of the past once you kind of get beyond puberty, but it's not. Like we've seen in the scene is everybody's doing it. Everybody wants you to do this. This is what the crowds want. You've got to do this. And as silly as that is, like, let's just be transparent. You and I, we, we really resonate with that argument. Like, very few of us are okay being part of the minority. Now, there's a little bit nuanced because probably all of you in this room, because you do life in Denver, um, you're like, oh, no, like, we love being weird. You know, like, I love being the minority. I love being different. I love eating different types of food. I love, you know, I love not listening to, like, mainstream bands. That's not what I'm talking about, okay? I'm not talking about the cool minority. I'm talking about the uncool minority. I'm talking, like, you found your niche little markets where you and all your friends, even though you might be, like, a small percentage of the larger U.S. population, have come to the conclusion that you have the perfect worldview in terms of how life is supposed to go. And all of a sudden, Jesus declares something that makes you a functional outcast amongst your friends and your brothers and your family. Nobody enjoys that. Particularly in the areas of life that are really difficult, areas of life that really matter, 
like understandings of sexuality and money and family and priorities. Nobody, nobody amongst the people they really respect and want to be part of the masses love the thought of being an outcast. And the really disappointing thing about Jesus, not only in this scene but in our lives as well, is that a significant aspect of following him is that he will not surrender to the crowds. And that stinks sometimes. It really, really can hurt sometimes. And yet, here is this man not surrendering. The crowd is pressing in around him, whether it's literal in this scene, whether it's figurative in our own culture today, saying this is what you have to believe, this is what you have to do, this is the right way of understanding the world. And Jesus is fine being a small minority saying, no, no, I'm not going to surrender to the crowds. The crowds will surrender to me, and I will go and do my own thing. That is tremendously disappointing, because if you're anything like me, you love to be loved, you like to be liked, and it is really, really hard. Amongst friends that you want to respect you, amongst neighbors that you want to be viewed as a good neighbor by, not a bad neighbor by, amongst family that even if you've had your differences, you really hope, like, approves of your life choices, to say, no, I'm going to make a significant life decision that will put me in the minority. Now, as we walk through this, what we're not just asking the question of is, how does Jesus disappoint? But could that disappointment actually be really good news? So that's the question, is does this disappointment that Jesus doesn't surrender to the crowd, does that actually emerge as good news? Now, I would say it does at times. At times, it emerges as really good news. And I think the question you have to ask yourself is whether or not there are times in culture where the majority is actually wrong. And not just wrong, like in a cute way. I feel like a lot of times, like historically, when this is given example, it's like, oh, yeah, the majority of the world believed that the, the world was flat. <laughs> Isn't that silly? Like, no. I'm talking about have there been times where the majority of the world has been wrong about far more significant things that have real-life implications for the areas of life that matter the most? I would say if you study history, yeah. I mean, I would say if you study history, some of you and the communities that you grew up in, if they took a vote 50 or 60 years ago as to whether or not people of different races should intermingle with one another, whether or not a family like mine that's composed of three races should be able to exist people would have voted us down, and our lives would be at risk. And if you're part of a church that advocated for that, like, you would be risking your life. So Andy and I were talking about this this past week. He was talking about the last time that he got his teeth cleaned at the dentist, and how this, uh, the, the, uh, you're like, where is this coming? Um, <laughs> she's kind of a, a, an older lady, and she was talking about when she was a mother, uh, or when she first had her child, uh, it was like in the, in the 60s or it was like the late 60s, early 70s, that a majority view amongst housewives of the time was that when you're breastfeeding, the first thing you should do before you breastfeed is have a beer or two. Um, because it just goes better. Like, everybody's calmer, and there's something like about the yeast that scientifically like helps the baby calm down. And it's like, I can, I can pull it up on the whiteboard and tell you why the baby's calmer. Like, the baby is drinking Guinness. That is why the baby is calmer. Um, but that was like the majority view. Like it was not only okay, it was encouraged as well. 
And I know, I know like what the natural pushback is towards that. Then it's like, oh, yeah, yeah, people in the 50s, they're a bunch of racists. We would have never been, you know, pro-segregation. People in the 70s, they were medically ignorant. And we would never be like this today. And C.S. Lewis, he, he talks about this. He calls what you're feeling right now chronological snobbery. And it's really easy to look at people who did life in the 50s, 60s, 70s and say, oh, they're a bunch of idiots. We're enlightened now. But you have to understand people in the 2020s, 2030s, 2040s are going to look back on us and be like, those people were morons. You, you're going to look at the way you dress, you're going to look at the way you did life, you're going to look at the things you advocated for your children, and you're going to be like, man, everybody was doing this and everybody was stupid. In fact, Bertrand Russell, he's a famous philosopher, he's not a Christian, he actually opposed Christianity very strongly, but he made a really interesting point. He says, indeed, in view of the silliness of the majority of mankind, a widely spread belief is more likely to be foolish than sensible. And it's interesting when you study history and you see, like, we all want to be part of the masses and we all want to be part of the majority, but then if you think logically and thoughtfully and intelligently about this, you look and you're like, man, like, the majority has not only been wrong, but it's oftentimes functioned as a mob fighting for tremendously dangerous and harmful things. It's like, what good news could it be if there is a man who doesn't surrender to peer pressure the way you and I naturally do, who could lead us away from the mob when it's dangerous? And where this starts to really matter is when you think about, like, parents, your children need you to parent them not based off of what is the majority view on the mommy blogs of the day. Like, some of that stuff you're going to look back on a decade from now and you'll be like, that was stupid. And you can't just tell your child, well, like, hey, well, everybody was doing it and this really compelling writer said it and she got like 10,000 likes on Facebook because of it and that's why we raised you that way. Like your children need something more than that grounded in a more universal truth than the majority opinion about parenting that changes literally like every single month in terms of what is best for your kids. Or like single person, men and women, like you not surrendering to the majority view of sexuality that is imposed upon you. And you're right, like if people in our city took a vote about the way you should handle sex, the reality is, is the thought of like waiting until marriage does not put you at the cool kid's table, right? We took a vote, it's like you lose if that's your view. But you need, I mean, we work with so many people who have surrendered to the masses and the mobs who are heartbroken and feel like damaged goods in the wake of the popular view of sexuality having no real significance whatsoever and do whatever you want and you're in charge and your body isn't, it's, you know, having sex is the same thing as eating a meal. It's not that big of a deal. Just give in to your appetites. And it's like you need somebody to lead you away from the crowds and to say like, hey, like this isn't going to make you cool. It's going to leave you with less stories to share on Monday morning at work. But like, when you think long about your life and the legacy you're going to leave behind you, like this is actually for your joy. And I think what you see is like, well, on the surface is tremendously disappointing because none of us want to be an outcast. Is actually really good news because here's this man leading us towards the truth, even when it's not the majority opinion in culture, and most of us would compromise. Now, not only is it Disappointing for that reason. It's also disappointing because in this scene, you're seeing Jesus establish his own agenda. Jesus is disappointing here because he's establishing his own agenda. 
Um, and it's interesting because you're starting to see in this scene a juxtaposition between really what the disciples expect of Jesus and what Jesus expects of Jesus. So the disciples are like, you've got to get back there. There's all these people that love you and adore you, and you're healing. And you're, like, essentially what the disciples are after is this kind of like almost exclusively social justice-oriented mission that leads to Jesus getting voted into political office. Like, who doesn't vote for the guy that heals everybody? Jesus is like, I mean, you see, literally, he says, that's not why I came. I came out to preach to these other towns, and so we're leaving. I mean, I feel like on a macro level right there, boom, instantly, you see how disappointing this is. There's a a large number of churches, even in our own city, that says that Christianity and Jesus exists solely for the purpose of social justice. And I always point, whenever we're having that conversation with other pastors, I always point people to the scene. It's like, man, here's Jesus walking away from social justice opportunities for the sake of saying, I am prioritizing preaching and teaching truth. Not saying that's all that matters, just saying we're not totally doing away with the teaching of truth and him not saying that is the bedrock of his mission as he goes about fulfilling the greatest mission of social justice you've ever seen in the universe. And I feel like you can kind of hit it at that level because there's a lot of people then who like want to hijack Jesus onto their cause. We talked about this a couple weeks ago that everybody wants to say like, well, if Jesus were around today, he would be supporting the things I support and believe in the things I believe and he'd be on my team. And I love slash hate like what Jesus does here. He's like, no, like I'm not on your team. You don't call me to be part of your cause in order to prop up your own agenda. You submit and you surrender to mine. And I'll tell you where this is really hard for me because it's really easy to kind of stand on the outskirts and kind of throw stones at the churches that don't maybe look at this in a, in a healthy way. Like for me personally, I feel like, like I'm still learning this on a day-in, day-out basis. I feel like particularly when I suffer or particularly in those moments where I'm disappointed by God and I'm wondering where are you and why isn't my life going in the way that I wanted it to go, it's like they're little like pings, little like reminders inside of my heart Oh, yeah, like Jesus does not get hijacked onto my agenda. My agenda is largely like, I'm famous, I'm influential, I'm wealthy, life goes exactly the way I want to go, everybody's healthy, no heartbreak, no pain, everybody loves me. Like Jesus isn't on board with that agenda. I don't call him to mine, he calls me to his, and it means in the process, there might be really difficult things where I'm losing the vision of the life that I've been raised my entire life to believe that I am entitled to for the sake of making much of him. And that is so hard. (laughs) It's so hard in this moment for these disciples where they're like, wait a second, I thought we were going to get everything that we wanted. Again, we ask the question, like, is that disappointment good news? And, I mean, we'll see this in the next point, so I don't want to give it away too much, but it's like the really beautiful thing is Jesus is not some cruel dictator who's plowing over his subjects, but instead he is more after our joy and fulfillment than we ever would be. I mean, it's amazing. Like, when my agenda goes to die, what is dying is a small vision for my life. Like, I would be content for the ultimate cause of my life being that I grow old, fat, and happy and have as much money as possible to do exactly what I want. Jesus, as he calls me to his agenda, actually calls me to a greater and deeper joy, saying, like, you would be content with your agenda being about your prosperity. My agenda is about the eternal salvation of your soul and your infinite uh, 
joy found in believing and following me. And once again, it's like, it's not that our desires in a scene like this are too strong. They're actually too weak. We would compromise far too early. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. Like my agenda is different than yours. And I will not surrender to yours because mine is better than yours. And that should actually make you delight in that as opposed to be disappointed and frustrated and want to take your ball and go home. Now, this is elaborated in the third reason that Jesus disappoints. And we see this as the scene kind of unfolds in verses uh, 40 and beyond, where Jesus disappoints. He really gives the ultimate disappointment because he dies. Jesus disappoints because he dies. So what happens in verses 40 through 42 is this uh, leper comes to Jesus, this terrible skin condition. He would have viewed not just being sick, but unclean, would have been an outskirt of, on the outskirts of culture, comes to Jesus and says, can you make me clean? Can you make me clean? And Jesus says, I am willing to make you clean. I will heal you. Look at verse 42. Immediately, the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him. It's really interesting. You see that? Like, you're starting to get a little bit of the feeling of, like, the way this was originally written in the Greek when it says sternly charged him. It's, it's, it's getting at the degree to which Jesus is emphasizing, do not do this. And sent him away at once, verse 44, and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priests, and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. Again, think about this in real life. Think if you're one of the disciples here, and you've just witnessed something like this, and you hear Jesus say, don't tell anybody that I did this. Like for me, I'm like, you got to tweet that junk, Jesus. You got to Instagram that, and like, leper, can you get posed in like the right, okay, hold on. Like, let me pick the filter. Okay, that brings out the, the healing on your arms as much as possible. Everybody needs to hear about this. And Jesus is like, don't tell anybody. Which again, theological side note, what this is known historically as is as the messianic secret. You see Jesus do this earlier with the demons as well. He charges them, don't tell anybody about this. The reason why is not because Jesus is anti-sharing like sharing your faith, but it's because, in the words of one commentator, uh, he says something along the lines of, until Jesus Christ has been crucified and risen from the grave, all assumptions about who he, are, who he is uh, is merely speculative. And so he's kind of waiting to do like the entirety of his mission before people are proclaiming this is who Jesus is. But it's interesting, look what happens in verse 45, because you're asking, like, well, how does he disappoint because he dies? He doesn't die in this scene, but Mark is intentionally drawing attention to like what Jesus will ultimately come to do. But he, verse 45, but he, being the leper, went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places, and people were coming to him from every corner. Now, it's really interesting, because what has functionally happened in this scene is the leper and Jesus have essentially traded places with one another. Here was this leper who was dirty and unclean and was on the outskirts of culture and as a consequence of Jesus taking on his illness, Jesus is placed on the outskirts of culture, and the leper is able to go everywhere and talk to everybody and do exactly what he wants to do. And Mark, he very, Mark is a brilliant writer. Hopefully you've seen this at this point as we've been walking through this. Mark very intentionally is foreshadowing the coming of the cross where Jesus will take the place of sinners so sinners can take the place of Jesus. That Jesus will be condemned so that you and I can be forgiven. And his condemnation is ultimately seen at the cross when Jesus dies. 
It is what our shortcomings, our sin, ultimately deserves. And on one hand, that is tremendously disappointing. You've probably heard people talk about this. Like, for the disciples at the time, the reason that Jesus ultimately dies alone, if you can fast forward, is because on Palm Sunday, Jesus enters into Jerusalem, celebrated in many ways like a king, and he's left, or he leaves the community, tortured, slaughtered, killed. For the disciples, they signed up for the king part, not the man that they're going to follow, dying the most embarrassing death in the culture of that day. So on one hand, it's tremendously disappointing. That's why when Jesus died, he died alone. And when he rose, he rose to even his closest friends being tremendously skeptical as to whether or not they should go back into this whole Christianity thing because it's been deeply heartbreaking for them. And yet, why is this tremendously good news? It's because Jesus Christ, in the midst of the world's greatest tragedy, secures the world's greatest blessing. That he would take the place of a leper, that he would take the place of a sinner, that he would take the place of you, that he would take the place of me, and die this tremendously embarrassing death so that you and I could receive forgiveness of our sins and eternal salvation. And why this is good news is not just like, okay, well, I get to go to heaven one day, even though that is, that's really great news. Like, that's fantastic news. Because the eternal consequences of the soul are weighty. We don't talk about them very much because it's not popular in majority culture, but they're weighty and they matter. But even more so, in this life now, prior to our death, that gospel lens becomes something that we can interpret the circumstances of our disappointment through in the here and now. And so... In some ways, it means then that as we are deeply disappointed by God, in the same way the disciples can look back on their disappointment and say, oh, no, like God was actually working out good where there was bad, we can do the exact same thing. And for many of you, there are places in your life where you can look back 10 years in the past and you can say, like, thank God, God did not give in to my demands as what I ultimately wanted. In the words of Garth Brooks, as much as I do not like country music, sometimes I have to thank God for unanswered prayers. And some of you are like that. You like look back, and you look back on somebody that you thought you were going to marry, and they broke up with you, and it crushed you, and you're like, man, like I was an idiot, and glory to God, like glory to God that I did not marry that dude that I thought I was going to marry in middle school, or high school, or whenever it was. So some of you can do that, and the gospel becomes a lens through which we can interpret and have hope in those lens, but even more than that, the cross of Jesus Christ becomes a lens through which we can interpret the disappointments that are not so uh, easily explained away. And this is where, I mean, many of you, the city is a magnet for deep brokenness, and as you think about the illnesses that you yourself are working through, the sicknesses of the people who are close to you, the people who have been deeply influential on you that have died, the things that you've experienced that you've done and have been done to you where it's not as simple as pulling out the whiteboard and saying, well, you know, this happened, so this could happen, and this could happen, and this could happen. If I'm just honest, like, we do not have a good answer for it right here and right now. What the death of Jesus offers us is the opportunity to remain perplexed, but at the same time, hopeful. Like, the reality of the only sinless man in human history dying for the sins of everybody else is the most tragic scene in the entirety of human history. Nothing in culture will surpass the injustice of that moment. And yet in that moment, what is secured is the world's greatest blessing. 
And so in that moment, what we interpret through the lens of the gospel, our, our tremendously difficult, disappointing circumstances to say, like, I don't completely understand, and I am tremendously skeptical, and I am fighting to believe, and I am perplexed, but although I am perplexed, I am hopeful. Hopeful that if God can work about the greatest good from the greatest evil that the world has ever seen, he can do the same thing in my life as well. And so as a consequence then, the disappointments of Jesus at surface level as we press in actually become tremendously good news. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to pray and we're going to respond. As we do that, I want you to really think about what we just talked about particularly through the lens of like the disappointments that you're working through and fighting through right now. Like I know for a, just because of the nature that we're in many of your lives, like there are things that are deeply damaging to you, that are deeply disappointing to you, that lead to you really struggling with whether or not Jesus is who he says he is and if he is good. And I want you to really just, you don't have to say anything, but to think and meditate deeply because the reality is in most areas of our lives, like we just don't want to go there. I would rather watch TV than think about these areas of my life and to press in and to fight and to say, I want to think deeply and critically, not just about this. And I'm not even trying to find an answer in the next three minutes, but I'm trying to think through this through the lens of the gospel. If God can bring about the world's greatest blessing from the world's greatest tragedy, what can he do in my life as well? All right, let's pray and then we'll respond. God, we thank you so much that you do not hide the aspects of the work that you did here on earth through Jesus from this book. I feel like every other movement and every other startup is trying to exaggerate their successes and hide their weaknesses. And here you put tremendous disappointment on full display. You do not try to trick us into believing in you, but you give us the real thing. And as we feel the weight of the disappointment the disciples felt, and as we contemplate that those disappointments are actually good news, I pray that as we think about the disappointments in our own lives, that we would be able to give at least some sense of, be given some sense of clarity and direction, and even just hope, like the hope that surpasses all understanding. Because I know there are aspects of our lives that are just they're really hard to explain away very quickly and easily. And so, um, I pray that we would think deeply about that and that you, through your spirit, would move and give assurance um, where it has been lacking for many of us for years of our lives. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.